This audio recording is of Restoration Road's regular Sunday service, September 24, 2017. The reader is Russell Jander. The speaker is Andrew Pack. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. to Titus, um, chapter 1, verse 5 through 16. This is the word God has for us today. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. This is your first time with us. My name is Andrew. I'm on staff here at the church. Uh, If you'd open your Bibles up with me to Titus chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there is some out there. Uh, And a couple of notes as we dig in. I will be preaching out of the Christian Standard Bible today, but the Bible's out there, and the Bible on the screen will be the ESV. Uh, uh, That will be the Bible I'm out of today. And also another note, you might notice that we're actually preaching out of the same text that Sam preached out of last week, if you were here for that. Uh, it's a good reminder that with God's Word, God's Word always has uh, one message and one truth, and yet uh, that text and, and that section can say a lot of different things, and there's a lot of different things for us to glean. Uh, in fact, an infinite number of things and a, a number of ways you can approach text. So while I won't be preaching a different uh, uh, truth than what Sam was preaching last week, uh, we'll be looking at some different facets uh, this week, uh, specifically kind of what he alluded to last week, the, the sort of profiles of a mature Christian that we see in this description for elders. So to that end, I will pray for us, and then we will go ahead and dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day, and we are your people. 
We are here to glorify You. We are here to love You. We are here to know You. We are here to gather to know You more. Holy Spirit, be with us and guide us and lead us. Give us soft hearts to hear Your Word. Give us soft hearts for the truth of the Gospel. Help us to understand who we are in You uh, and what You're doing in our lives for Your glory and for our joy. Help us to understand that it's just Jesus. That Jesus is everything. That we're not here to build some Jesus plus something else system, but to depend on and cling to the Word that You have come to save us from ourselves and from our sin and from all our wrongdoing to a life in You and a life in abundance. Help us to live in that joy and help us to glorify You as we enjoy You with everything we have. Help us to respond to this truth, Jesus. I just pray, Lord, whatever is just of me may be forgotten. But the things that are of You, may they shine in our hearts. May they, they fuel the fire of our worship. And they, may they lead us and guide us in You and in Your ways. Jesus, we love You and we pray these things for Your glory and for our joy. And in Your name, Jesus Christ, Amen. So we're in Titus. We're in chapter 1, starting in verse 5. And today what we're going to look at is that there's two kinds of people that are represented in, this, in this, these two paragraphs. Uh, Pastor Sam rightly last week pointed out that when you look at elders in a church, uh, you're really looking at a profile for what you want every mature Christian in your church to look at. Um, the elders are not varsity uh, super saints, but they are people who have come to know Jesus, have responded to the truth of Christ, and are living clearly and plainly in the wake of the reality of who He is and what He has done. They are people who have seen Jesus. They are people for whom Jesus is everything. And as we roll through the paragraph, we'll see another set of people. A set of people for, for whom Jesus isn't enough. Who create systems that are Jesus plus something else. Jesus in addition to some other thing to be more holy. People who think they have a secret, more, secret, more deeper, more spiritual Christianity that's something greater and bigger than what Jesus has to offer us. And as we look to these elders, these people, uh, those for whom Jesus is everything, we'll see that they are people who have seen Jesus for who He is. They've seen God in His glory and themselves for who they are for that matter. There are people who have come to understand and realize that God is good and God is holy and God is right and that God in His grace and mercy has sent His Son Jesus Christ into history to save us for His glory and for Himself, not because of anything you or I have done, but everything He has done. That it's a complete and utter gift of grace that we get to know God and a complete gift of mercy that we don't get what we deserve for our rebellion. And this is a free gift for all who repent and believe. Elders are people who have seen that. As we look at this profile, we want to see what a mature Christian is from what's presented here. And it's a beautiful picture. And, and if you don't know Jesus... This is what we want you to know. We want you to see Him and know Him and know that He is the God who saves from death to life, not because of anything that we do, but everything that He has done. Now, the second set of people, they're going to have a Jesus plus mentality, where it's Jesus plus something else to live a righteous life before God. It's Jesus plus something else. And this is really what every world religion has offered us, that you need to do something to get to God. Christianity is the message, and when we see Jesus for who He is, we see this. Christianity is the message that God had to come down and get to us. That the gap that we have made between ourselves and God is too great, and by His gift and His grace, He had to come save us. And that's what these people have seen. And I pray this is what you have seen, or will see. Now, 
what's really important here is that if you are a Christian, you see we're looking at two profiles here, two kinds of people, two examples of what a mature Christian is supposed to look like and then these other guys, sort of the bad guys, if you will, right, in the story. But something I need you to see, and I'm, I'm pleading with you to see, is that second set of people. They're, these are church folk. These are actually people who think of themselves as more mature and more godly and that they really know who Jesus is and that they love him more. And we need to see that and hear that because I think there is a warning in here for us. But I think there's also a call to something much greater and that's to see Jesus for who he is and live in the wake of that reality. So here we are. We're in Titus. We're in chapter 1. We're starting in verse 5. Excuse me. The reason I left you in Crete. So this is Paul to Titus. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. Now he's talking about the churches on the island of Crete as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. So Paul gets the big picture of what God is doing in the world. We worship a God who in His grace and mercy saves broken people, saves sinners, saves people in rebellion for a purpose to carry the good news of His grace and His mercy and His message to the ends of the earth. And He does that through something really amazing and special, and that's called a local church like this one. Just like the ones in Creek, just like this one. We're not, we're not different. We're, we're on the same message with the same... We're on the same mission with the same message, Jesus saves sinners, repent and believe, with the same purpose to glorify Him. This is not simply a social gathering. I don't know if you know that when you woke up this morning. It is a social gathering in a sense. It is a place where the people of God, people of God come together to one another, one another. But we come here as ambassadors, as a kingdom embassy to proclaim the goodness of Jesus to Snohomish. And that has cosmic and eternal ramifications. And it's a gift. Now, now, Paul knows something about these. They need to be put in order and, and some things need to be put the way they need to be put. And that's, that's what he's going to talk about here. Now, again, if you want to listen to a really great sermon on eldership, Pastor Sam brought it last week and it was awesome and you should listen to it. But today we're going to focus on something he even pointed out last week. And that when you look to elders, you're looking at an exemplary Christian. You're looking at things that you want to see in Christian people. And, and that's actually what we're looking for uh, in El, what Paul is looking for in elders here uh, with uh, Titus. So here, here we go in verse 6. An elder must be blameless or maybe above reproach. Now, it's, it's really important as we, as we move into this text that you look at this and you understand when we talk about blamelessness, we're not talking about people who have cleaned their lives up so that they might appear blameless to the world. They are not blameless based on the things they have done, but who they are in Christ and what Christ has done for them. That is what makes them blameless. They are made right with God through Jesus Christ. And, and again, if, if you're looking for, in the elders of this church or in other Christian people, someone who is perfect and sits on a pillar and never ever fails and every, always, always does everything right all the time, that is not what Paul is talking about. That is not the kind of blamelessness he is talking about. What I, what I think he is after, actually, is if you'd go with me to Ephesians chapter 4, starting to verse 17. It says this, Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. Ephesians is that way, by the way, from Titus in your Bible. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer live as Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts, 
They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. This is who we were. If, if you're not a Christian and you're here, you need to know that this is who we understand that we were and that Jesus has changed us. And, and this is what he's looking for. This is who these elders were. And this is who the example is. But listen, he keeps going. Verse 20. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming what? Assuming you have uh, heard about him and were, taught, uh, and were taught by him. What does this mean? That they're Christians. It means that they are people who have heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus saved sinners from death to life, and they've turned from their sin, and they've turned to Jesus, and they belong to him. The thing that makes these elders blameless, the thing that makes you blameless if you are a Christian person, is not the things that you have done, but what has been done for you in Christ. You are blameless. You are free. You are forgiven. This is who you are, not because of what you've done, but because of the cross. Because of the empty tomb. And here's the amazing thing about these elders and about you as we talk about an exemplary Christian. He's not talking about something they do. He's not talking about something that goes on the job description. He's talking about something they are. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. You are blameless. Now he's going to begin to give a list of things that will evidence that blamelessness. The fruit of who they are in Christ. But here we are in, uh, in Ephesians. We keep going. As the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22. To take off your former way of life. The who you once were. Before you met Jesus. The old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, which we're still doing, by the way, right? We're still repenting of sin. We're still turning to Jesus. We're still being sanctified. We're still being transformed by him into the likeness of his son, but we do so because he's actually already made you something different than you once were. Our pursuit of Christ starts there. People made new. And as people made new, we're taking off the old self and we're putting on the new. We're getting rid of the old family and putting on the new family. Uh, we're, we're taking off the dominion of darkness and we're putting on the dominion of light. Uh, we, are, we are being changed and transformed, but not so that God will love us, but because he has loved us and changed us. We're taking off the old self. We're putting on the new. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Listen. The one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and pure, the purity of the truth. That's who you are. Right? So when we talk about looking at this example of a mature Christian, we're looking to see this reality evidenced in their life. So go back with me. He says a really strong word there. I don't know if you caught how strong that word he said. They must be blameless. Again, this is not without fault. And, I, and, I, and, I'll, and we'll see it from the context. This is evidenced in their actions that they have been changed by Jesus and belong to Him. That is our example of maturity. Uh, to put it a different way, the line between the person they once were and the person they actually are is thinner and thinner and thinner. Praise the Lord. That's what our lives as Christians are to look like. 
We're more like Jesus as we pursue him. And of course, Paul tells us in Philippians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, not that I've already obtained this, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's about who they are. Let's start there. They must be blameless. That was awesome. Uh, And then he goes on. The husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. And we need to be careful here. These two are not the things I think uh, from the flow of the argument and the grammar. These aren't the things that evidence it. You have to understand what we're dealing with in the first century. It is not weird in the first century for you church planter in Crete to say, here's our new core group, and this is Jimmy John and his three wives, and they come in and say, We all love Jesus. If you meet anyone who does missions work in Africa, you hear of stories like these. Me and my three wives, we all love Jesus and want to follow Him, and God hates divorce. What do we do now? That's complicated and probably a sermon for a different day. (laughs) Likewise, children in rebellion, children who, who are wiling out. Now, does that mean that that person is not blameless in Christ if a parent has children that are wiling out? No. But, like the guy with three wives, you probably have bigger fish to fry than being an elder in the local church at that moment and at that stage of your life. Like Sam was saying last week, your first church. If that's where you're at with your kids, you got work to do. you got stuff to deal with. And, and we love you, right? But it's probably not a good time to take on this other responsibility. Likewise, Three wives. Complicated, different sermon, different day. But then he actually moves into these more, these evidences from there. Verse 7. An overseer. A very fascinating word. Overseer. Uh, This doesn't mean like manager, which kind of sounds like, oh, he oversees, you know, the fish processing plant, which is a fine job if that's your job, right? But uh, overseer here has a connotation of a guard. Someone who, who guards the church. Uh, in, in military terms, it's, in Roman military terms, this word was, would be used for people who are a scout, who scout out and go behind enemy lines as the army comes behind them, not a manager. Uh, it's more of a guardian, a guard, or something like that. But listen, this is very interesting. He says this, an overseer of God's household must be what? There's our word again. Above reproach or blameless. Here's a Bible reading cue for you. If the author uses two of the same, the same word twice in two verses, pay attention to what he's saying. He's circling back around to this. They must be a solid Christian person. They must be evidencing a life that says this person belongs to Jesus, that Jesus is their everything. Or later uh, in the paragraph, he's going to use this phrase, cling to the word. That's the kind of people we're talking about. But that's what we're looking for in every Christian person. That a person who is in Christ clings to the Word of God and will not let go. Holds fast to the Word of God and loves it and cherishes it and trusts it because they love Jesus. Not arrogant. Uh, this word arrogant. And, and see these all the, all the ones that flow from here are all responses to the Gospel. Uh, not arrogant here specifically has the connotation of, of, of a kind of pride without feeling or a kind of pride without sympathy or a kind of pride without empathy. As Christian people, we are empathetic. We are sympathetic. When someone is struggling with sin, we get down in the muck with them. We weep with the weeping. That is what we are called to do as Christian people. Uh, Jesus Christ is our model for this. 
He became our faithful high priest, like us in every way, but knew no sin. Why? So he could be made like his brothers, so he could sympathize with us in our weakness. Jesus can sympathize with you in your weakness because he's lived here. He's known what it's like to be a human being on planet earth, to be tempted to sin just like you are every day. And you have a faithful high priest who you can go to and say, I need help, Jesus. Now, mind you, he's God and that is enough. This is, this is commonly what we see in the incarnation. He is God and that is enough for him to be gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and all these things. And yet that God who is enough did come into human history, taking on the human form uh, in, in Philippians, set aside his divine rights, took on the form of a servant. Part of that is so that he could actually know what it's like to be you. That is very, very difficult to understand sometimes. But our response to that reality should be sympathy when we're walking with people in weakness. He who was strong became weak. Not hot-tempered. You don't have a short fuse. God of the Bible. Most quoted Old Testament by the Old Testament. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. Most quoted Old Testament verse in the Old Testament. That's who he is. And guess what? That's what he's been with you. He's been very slow to anger with you. He's been very gracious to you. If you are here today and you don't know who he is, God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance and you're here today to meet him. That's who he is. And so we're not hot-tempered. We don't have a short fuse. Not an excessive drinker. Now, I, I think this obviously has the, the direct connotation, but when you look at these lists, you always need to understand uh, that they're rarely uh, meant to be exhaustive. So you say, oh, not an excessive drinker, but I can do these other things that are kind of like that, right? Uh, that's why Paul throws in things like inventors of evil, because they're going to cook something else up, and if you cook something else that I didn't put on the list, I mean that too, okay? But, but I think what we're after here I think what Paul is after here is that in the elders and in Christian people in general, we are looking for people who are satisfied in Christ. We're looking to be satisfied in Christ. That, that's what it means. It means to be satisfied in Him. So, so I'm not satisfied in, in drinking, but also Ben and Jerry's video games, the Seahawks game, and uh, what else you got? Seinfeld, Judge Judy, name it. Bass fishing, what else you got? Foosball, I'll keep going. Our problem is we love to find our satisfaction in things other than Jesus. And in Jesus, we have absolutely everything. And nothing will satisfy like the infinite, wonderful, glorious, beautiful God of the universe will satisfy. We are looking to find something that has that infinite satisfaction in everything but Jesus. But the only place you will find infinite satisfaction in He who is infinite, King Jesus, the God of the universe what you're built for. Come and drink. All you are thirsty, come and drink. It's what he came to do. It's what you've been built for. You've been built to enjoy him. You've been built to love him. You've been built to know him. That is the purpose of your life. It's the purpose. And that's what he's looking for here, I think. Most important theological quote in my early Christian life God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And that's the aim. 
And these things, though, right? Like we don't seek to find our satisfaction in Jesus so that he will love us. We seek to find our satisfaction in Jesus because he has loved us. It's evidencing that they are blameless. It's evidencing that you are blameless when your aim is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. It evidences that you know him and love him because if you know him and love him, that's what you're seeking to do. If you don't know him and love him, who cares, right? You're not seeking to know him and the power of his resurrection. But friends, we find our satisfaction in so, so many other things. And they're vapor. There's dust on your Bible. Ah, sleep is better than prayer in the morning. There are 10,000 other things we do. But this isn't where you sit there and feel bad and say, well, I should feel bad and maybe set my alarm a little earlier tomorrow. This is where you're invited into the reality. God's, God's got so much for you and we go for so many other things than God. Let's keep going. Not a bully. This actually means like pushes people around. We use this word a lot in 2017 and it has a, it's a loaded word with lots of connotation. I think in the ESV it says violent, not a bully. It actually means someone who pushes people around. Right? Uh, you don't need to push anybody around. Right? That's not how you get what you want on planet Earth when you are a Christian. We know King Jesus. He has done it all. And he will vindicate the righteous. And he will fight for what is right in the world. And he will take care of it. And he is our defender. And he is the one that's going to accomplish his will. And he is going to return. And he is going to deal with the world. And so we deal with it as his ambassadors and his citizens. Not violent. Not bullies. And really, this word means that in that physical way. Not greedy for money. That is a hard one in 2017. You live in America right? We have a lot. And that's, that's where we're at, right? You have a lot. You don't feel bad about it. Like, we have two projectors on the screen. Like, you need, you know, it's helpful. We don't need two projectors. Like, we have a lot. You are more blessed than you probably even imagine, right? Again, it's, it's not finding satisfaction in other things. It's not grabbing a bunch of God's stuff and saying, it's mine, 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 mine. It's living your whole life saying it's his, it's his, it's his, it's his. It's all his. Everything I have belongs to him and he is enough. Take it all away and he's still enough. Take this building away and we will worship Jesus in the parking lot. Take our things away and we have Jesus. You can take it all. We don't, it's hard for us in 2017 in America to imagine what it is to have absolutely everything taken away from us. But if you, Christian, have absolutely everything taken away from you, you still have absolutely everything in Christ. Because in Jesus, we have everything. That is the motivation for our generosity. Not, not just to be a nice person or not to be kind. I can share what I have because I already have everything in Jesus. Now, what's interesting here, oh, pardon me, uh, hospitable. He begins to talk about what we do do. If that's not what we're not supposed to do as Christians, let's talk about what we do do. We're hospitable. We're welcoming. We're inviting people into the family. There are no cliques in the church. We're people who are trying to welcome people into life together. 
And I can tell you the most amazing thing happened to my family when we showed up and actually got involved in a road group. It was like we had 10 new friends all of a sudden. And this amazing thing happens when you, you know, I hope you've experienced this. When you run into Christian people who love the Lord, who you've never met before, it doesn't take long before you're friends forever. Right? It does not take long. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And we need to seek to be as welcoming as we possibly can because we've been welcomed into the family of God by Jesus. You've been more welcomed into the family of God than you can possibly imagine. And we respond to that by welcoming others in. Loving what is good. Well, we love what is good because we love he who is good. We're sensible. Uh, this means a kind of uh, a wisdom in the way you operate in the world. You're slow, uh, slow to speak and slow to anger because we, we love God and know him and trust him and walk in his ways. There's a wisdom to it. And now what's really interesting is he gives us two more words here. And, and I need you to see this because we tend to think of things as doctrine over here and then we think of sort of like how we operate in the world over here and they live in different places. So that's like the theology guy and he's the guy that's good at theology and reading the Bible. And this is the guy who's really good at loving people. And mind you, he's kind of cranky and nobody likes being around him, but he's really good at theology and really knows some things. He can parse a Greek verb all day long. No one likes him. His family doesn't want to be around him. Well, then we say, well, yeah, but he's just really into doctrine. He's really into the Bible. And, and we're just really into loving people over here. The problem is, friends, if that's not affecting our life, it's not that, we have not, it's not that we've taken the Bible too seriously. It's that we haven't taken the Bible seriously enough. That, 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 that here with Paul, doctrine and life and our response to Jesus all weave together. There's not a category over here and a category over there, but that our life lived in the response to the truth of the Word of God. That without that, it, it's not really anything. It's just empty. And, and I think we see this here with Paul because he switches from the things we do in response, sensible, to righteous. The same word we used to translate the word justified. Well, what makes you righteous? Not, not the things you do. And I, and I think I can, I can back this up because the next word's holy. You don't make you holy. You don't make you righteous. This is the good news of the gospel. Because it was up to me to make me holy and righteous. I am in a lot of trouble. And so are you. We love self-salvation self, self projects. We love trying to do it on our own. We love trying to figure it out. But the reality is we need Jesus to intervene in our lives to save us, to move, to redeem us, to make us righteous. We are made righteous because the righteous one lived in my place and I'm holy because he's washed me by his blood and made me his own. And that's what we're looking at. That is a mature Christian. That it's evidence. The truth of their righteousness and holiness is evidenced in their life as we turn from sin and we turn to Jesus. Now, this is all capped off with this next verse in verse 9. And I think this is where he's going. And this is why these are those whom Jesus is everything. Verse 9 says this, holding to the faithful message as taught, or literally the word. Holding to the faithful word, the faithful truth about Jesus. That to be a Christian, to see Jesus for who He is, means we hang on to the truth of who He is, and regardless of the storm, and regardless of what is happening in our life, we cling to Him and we refuse to let go. Because we trust Him, and we know Him, and we love Him, and we know the truth 
that He set us free and He's made us right and He sent us His Spirit and that He's moving in our lives. Holding to the faithful message as taught. And this is going to be important here in a minute. Uh, because there's some people who are holding to a different message. A different message than the one that was taught. Holding the faithful message as taught. The apostolic witness. That's a fancy word to say the things that Jesus did, his disciples saw and told somebody who told somebody who told somebody who told somebody and so on and so on and so on and so on told you. The truth. Don't monkey with the truth. Don't tinker with God's Word is what he's saying. Trust God's Word. It's 2017. There are things that the Bible says plainly that people dislike so much that they try and tinker with it to say, even though it really obviously says that, it really means something different. The problem with this book, if there's a problem with this book, isn't the book, it's me. It's me. If there's something in here I can't hang with, it's me. It's not the book. It's not the Bible. It's not the Word of God. It's that I'm taking off the old man and putting on the new, and the old man doesn't like it. The old man doesn't like the truth of God. The old man doesn't like to be told what to do. Maybe that's just me. old man wants to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. new man loves Jesus, trusts Jesus with everything he's got. Who I actually am is an indwelt believer in the Lord God Almighty with a new heart and a new mind. And when I stop for a minute and say, no, that's not actually what I want to do. What I actually want to do is follow Jesus. He goes on. So that he will be able to both, listen, both encourage with sound teaching, that's the truth, and refute those who contradict it. It's a both and. This is what you want to be able to do when you're walking with people who need the truth, is to be able to share the truth with them. To help them in the Gospel, not with just some advice you heard on Judge Judy. Right? She's pithy, I know, but that is not necessarily godly counsel. Just so you know. And so you can encourage people from the truth. This is the truth. This is who you are. I feel guilty. I feel dirty. I feel wrong. I feel this. Yes, you feel those things. Feelings are real. Feelings count. Feelings aren't facts. You are a son of God most high. That's who you are. Turn from your sin and turn to Him. Be cleansed. You're cleansed. So stop rolling around in the mud like someone who's already had a bath. Maybe that's just my house at the playground. right? You're clean. Stay out of the mud. That's who you are. That's who you are. But he also says this, to both encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. That you can know the counterfeit. You can know a Jesus plus message. You can know when someone's monkeying with and tinkering with the Word of God. And to be frank, it's okay when you hear something that doesn't sound right and doesn't sound consistent with the truth. It is totally and completely okay for you to say, I'm pretty sure that's not right. And I might even need to ask somebody for some help to talk about it. It's okay. Like You don't have to be a walking Bible encyclopedia. That's, it's all right. It's okay. What I really encourage you to do, and I had to learn the hard way, is not to make something up in that moment. Don't do that. Because you'll probably make up a heresy. You laugh, but it's true. 
Now listen, we switch. We switch from those whom Jesus is everything, who are clinging tightly to the Word of God, who are evidencing that they're new people, that they're indwelt by the Spirit, that they have a new heart and they have a new mind. And we transition in verse 10 to these other folks. Now again, I'm going to say it and you need to listen. These are church folks. These, these are not them out there. These are church folks. These are people on the island of Crete who think that they actually know more about Jesus than the people who are clinging to the faithful messages that is taught. These are people who think of themselves more mature because they have some secret spiritual wisdom than the people who are busy knowing and loving Jesus. And in fact, they're probably busy knowing and loving a pretend Jesus, which makes them think they know the real Jesus. So here we go. For there are many rebellious people. There are 10,000 ways in which people have got off on the gospel, have wandered from the gospel. There's 10,000 little lies that people have told to make themselves more comfortable or more acceptable so that their neighbors will like them more or, or whatever it might be. There are many rebellious people, but he focuses on a, a particular kind, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. Now, the circumcision party, that's kind of a funny name for a party and not a party I want to go to, but it's a, it's a group of guys and gals who are likely Jewish converts, or pardon me, Jewish folks who are, have converted to Christianity, and their understanding is that you really need to become a Jew before you become a Christian. And by that I mean you need to start observing the Sabbath on Saturday, you need to be circumcised, you need to observe dietary law, you need to, to observe the Torah, you need to observe all these different pieces. So it becomes, yes, love Jesus, plus you must do these other things. Yes, Jesus has made you righteous, and in addition to the righteousness he has made for you, you must also make yourself righteous from the things that you do. These externals. These legalisms. It's a Jesus plus message. And, and to be frank, this, this is prevalent. A Jesus plus message? Just a Jesus message? You write a book about Jesus? No one's going to buy it. hate to let you down. You could write a commentary and like three seminary students are going to buy it. But you write a book about Jesus, most people aren't actually going to buy the thing, even though it might be good. Uh, most of the stuff that makes a conference happen, that Christian people go to, is not, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but is, Jesus is awesome, but you really should do this other thing, and that's what really holy, special, sacred, special people do. So give me 50 bucks, and I'll teach you about that thing, so you can go deeper with God for 50 bucks. Ahead. That's not the couple discount. That's 50 bucks a head. Now, there are great Christian conferences. There are great things that happen. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but there is a lot of, there's, there's a marketability to it. There's a likability to it. There's a likability to, I have a secret Christianity, a deeper Christianity, a better Christianity. What's better than Jesus? What's better than the gospel? What's better than the Bible? Nothing. We go back to the other paragraph talk about that some more, but that's the truth. Especially those from the circumcision party. So Jesus isn't enough for these people. It's Jesus plus something else. Now Paul has some really strong words. It is necessary to silence them. You've got to deal with these people, Titus. They're doing something horrible. and that, It says so right here. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. 
They're dividing families. They're teaching weird doctrine. They're doing wrong stuff. And they're leading people astray. And he's saying, Titus, you got to stop them. you, you got to talk to them. And, and this happens today. It just takes one person in one family to kind of get off the gospel in a Christian family to really rip a family apart, to really do some damage in there because they're getting off gospel. And it divides a family. And it's horrific. And it's horrible. And it's hard. Now, it is interesting that he says, what? They're doing it to get money dishonestly or filthy lucre. It's the King Jimmy version, and that is amazing. I sort of wish it said filthy lucre because that sounds awesome, but I have no idea what that means. It means blood money. They're tearing families apart by teaching false things so they can get something out of the deal. And here's the reason why they need to be silenced. I've, believe it or not, had a lot of interactions with heretics in my life. And I don't use that word lightly, by the way. I, I mean actual heretics. I'm not talking about people who disagree with me but are Orthodox Bible-believing Christians. I mean people who say weird things about Jesus that aren't true that no true Christian would agree with. You know, I, I had a friend who literally told to me, uh, you know, I feel like you're Christian, and you're, you're trying to follow Jesus, and you're trying to live in His world, but, you know, you're really in spiritual middle school, and you've got to come out to spiritual high school where, where things are real, where you understand that it's all pass up one mountain, all this other stuff that's just not the truth. He gained a lot. He gained a lot from that. And here's the scariest part. Grumpy, dislikable heretics don't have followings. Grumpy, dislikable heretics don't divide families. Likeable, interesting, clever Smart heretics, on the other hand, and again, I don't use that word lightly, at all, at all. Man, they're really likable. I've never had a thing where a grumpy heretic has like 10 followers. It's a real likable, friendly, you know, kind of, for lack of, just a real person you want to hang out with, right? And so they say, oh, you know, well, you're following your church and that, but this guy, he's really smart. And he's really got it together. And I think he really knows this kind of secret Christianity. All the while, he's making money off the deal. Verse 12, Paul says the least friendly thing about the island of Crete you've ever heard. But it's okay. He's just quoting somebody else because he's a rhetorical genius. One of their Ararian prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Thanks, Paul. Put that on the brochure to Crete. Now, of course, that's a great example of the old man. Like, this is who they are apart from Christ. In, in Jesus, you're not a citizen of Snohomish, Snohomish, the city so nice they named it twice. Uh, they're not citizens of Crete. They're citizens of another kingdom. But apart from Christ, we live like the rest of the world. And this is who we are. This is who I was. This is who you are if you don't know Jesus. And I know that's not a great thing for a, for a brochure, but I want you to know him and love him and be changed by him. So I'll be honest with you. This testimony is true. For this reason, and I need you to listen to this. For this reason, rebuke them sharply. Those are hard words. Correct them in a serious way. But listen why. So they may be sound in the faith. They are off the tracks. And sometimes it takes some very serious word with someone who's off the tracks to get them back on the tracks. It takes being really honest and really straight with people. But not in a way that's insensitive or unkind. 
but being straight with people. And sometimes, frankly, people don't want to hear that. Can't we all just be friends? Why would you say something like that to me? Because I love you. That's why. And I believe in the power of the Word to help you. And the power of the Spirit to convict you. And the power of God to change you. And to move you. It's not based on my eloquence. Uh, It's not based on my apologetics skills. It's not based on how many apologetics classes you have taken. Don't not take apologetics classes. Right? Have a defense for the faith. But it's, it's not your words. It's not your intelligence. It's not your smarts. It's not your jokes. It's the Word of God by the power of the Spirit to show people Jesus. You're an ambassador. Carry that to them. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth of the Word of God. It's the Spirit's job. You're the messenger, right? Do that. Do that well. And, you know, frankly, if they don't listen, be their friend. Don't freak out. Be calm. Keep telling them about Jesus. Keep on keeping on. That's life. But we don't say things to them because we believe we are smart and can convince them we believe in the power of the Word of God. So that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths. So this means, likely, the further you get to Jerusalem, Crete's out from Jerusalem, uh, in the first century, the weirder Jewish stuff got. So by the time you get out to Crete, it's probably kind of a little Gnostic, hyper-spiritual, there's some weird stuff happening. Closer to Jerusalem you get, the more like straightforward it is. The further you get, the more it tended to get weird. Jewish myth. We don't have time to talk about Second Temple literature. There is some weird stuff that got written between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And a lot of people started really clinging to a lot of weird stuff. You're like, why? Stop. Jewish myths. That's probably what he's talking about there. Jewish myths and commands of people who reject the truth. So they're telling them, you need to wash your cups and you need to do these sacrifices and you need to do these rituals and you need to do it this way. And that's what it means for you to follow Jesus. It's Jesus plus something else. They're not actually evaluating reality in the correct way because here's the reality of it. You and I have two things that we can do. We can follow Jesus or we can do something else. The way we tend to, to operate and the way we tend to think about what we should and should not do in the world is we tend to think to ourselves, Well, there's this thing I really would like to do. But I'm not really so sure that I should actually do that thing. And so the question we ask is, the wrong question, by the way, how far can I push that thing until I've sinned? Like Icarus, how close can I fly to the sun before my wings melt? how far can I push it before I've crossed the line and I'm no longer doing what God wants me to do? Well, here's the really scary part of that. As soon as you've asked that question, you've already sinned. As soon as the question is, how close can I get to unrighteousness and still not make God unhappy with me? You actually missed the point. The point of life is, how close can I stay to Jesus? Is this thing I am about to do going to draw me closer to or further from Jesus? Is this going to help me see Him more or less? Is this going to help me honor Him and enjoy Him more or less? This is why repentance is a turning. We turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus. And this is the process by which we're taking off the old man and putting on the new. We're turning from our sin and we're turning to Jesus. Every decision we make needs to be how, not how close can I get, but how do I keep turning towards Jesus? 
because he's already made me blameless. He's already given me a new mind and a new heart and indwelt me with the Holy Spirit and saved me and moved. And I've got a seat in, in heaven in the kingdom of God with him and no one can take it away from me and no one can take Jesus away from me because I am his and he is mine, not height nor depth nor power nor principalities or anything in creation could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So how do I stay as close as possible to him? How do I pursue him with absolutely everything I have? And, and we do this with Paul's good news from Philippians. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I, leave, I forget what lies behind and I strive on to make him my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. My motivation for this is that he's already bought me, that I already belong to him, that I'm already his child. Verse 15, to the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. There's some strong words. The word pure really means cleansed. To the pure, everything is clean. And now what he's referring here, really, what he's referring to here is these Jewish cleansing rituals that say it's Jesus plus these other things that make you righteous and make you clean. Now, the amazing thing that he's saying here is that in Christ, you're already clean. What he's not saying is do whatever you want. Because if you say, oh, cool, I can do whatever I want, and you start making a list of the people you're going to call and all the wiling out you're going to do when you leave here, you've actually missed the entire point of everything in the gospel. The gospel says, Jesus loves me, so I follow him. Not, Jesus has forgiven me for my sins, so I should probably run around and go do some sinning. Right? You have been cleansed. But this is who you are right now. If you are in Christ, you're clean. You're free. You're washed white. This is reality, right? This is why we need the Word. Because we sit there and say, well, I don't feel this way and I don't feel that. But this is the truth. And God knows better than you do. I hate to tell you that. I don't hate to tell you that. I actually revel in telling you that. Jesus knows better than you do. Jesus has more to say about who you are in the universe than you do. And He says you're forgiven. He says you're cleansed. He says you're clean if you're in Him. If you're in Him. If you're in Him, turn to Him if you don't know Him. Today's the day. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Now, we have to be careful here because people have done some wonky stuff with this particular idea. Um, if you have a Bible, it should be on the screen if you don't want to go with me. We're going far this way. And hopefully my notes don't fall out. We're going this way to Isaiah. We're in Isaiah. We're in 64 and 6. And uh, I'm always surprised at how many people have heard this out of context. And we do some wrong stuff in here. Uh, it says in 6, All of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. No one calls on your name, striving to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us melt because of our iniquity. Or in the King Jimmy, as it's often said, all your works are filthy rags. Now, we say that and we take that to mean everything I do all the time, forever and ever, never ever makes God happy. What's the problem with that statement? One, it makes Christianity kind of lame and what I do with my life kind of confusing. Two, the other big problem with it and the bigger problem with that is the rest of the Bible. A text without a context, this is what my Texan uh, Luke Acts scholar teacher used to always say, a text without a context is a pretext to make the text say whatever you want it to say. 
So this text here in Isaiah is referring to people who are going through the religious motions, yet worshiping false gods, loving other gods, and being unfaithful to God. And so what he's saying is what you're doing in the temple and what you're doing with your actions means nothing to me because you are not worshiping me with your heart. You are only worshiping me in name, but not with your life and not with your being, and you're not being faithful to me. And everything we do that is empty, Everything that is done to go through the motions. Everything we do so that God will love us, not because God has loved us. That's not what He wants for us. It's empty. It's vacuous. It's vapor. We don't come here to gather as the people of God to get points and gold stars so that God will love us. We are here because God has loved us. Because the people He has made us. Because what He has done. Go with me to John chapter 1. So we're going this way now. And I did this in the morning service. It's 1 John. So from Titus, it's not that way. It's that way. So it's 1 John. Flip a few more pages. 1 John chapter 3, verse 21 says this. Because that does sum up who we were. That it's empty and vacuous. But 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 21, says this. Dear friends, and I love John because he's really old when he's writing this. He's, he's this grandfatherly guy who walked with Jesus and has been through so much. And he's got some strong grandfatherly words in this book that kind of sting a little bit. But a lot of them are mostly dear friends, dear children, beloved. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from Him because we keep His commandments and do what is pleasing to Him in His sight. What did that say? Pleasing. You have been saved to love and enjoy Jesus, and that is pleasing to Him. Your life striving after Him as His child is pleasing to Him. Now, our sin is not pleasing to Him. When we rebel against Him, He is not happy about that. But here's the amazing thing. He saved you. Not just knowing all the things you had done against him before he saved you, but knowing all the things you would do after the fact. And he still said, mine. He still said, I want that one. Now, this is not a license to go from here and say, cool, it's covered. Right? That's not what I'm saying. Paul in Romans is straight up going to say, if you think that, then you haven't actually heard the gospel, like I said a minute ago. But I'll keep reading here. Listen. And do what is pleasing in his sight. And so they say, well, what's that? Now this is his command. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him, and, and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us and empowers us to live these changed lives in Jesus. So it's the evidence of that blamelessness, of that reality coming out when we love Jesus and we love other people. It's the evidence of what he's already done for us. I'll get back to Titus. To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. So it's the opposite. They say they know Jesus. They say they know Jesus better than you do, but everything in their life says something different. Everything in their life says something different. And so we as human beings, 
we don't get to make the final call on where someone's at with Jesus. But what we can say is, I don't think I can confirm that that person right now is a Christian person. Because that's not what a Christian person does at all, and they don't care. Because it's not saying you sinned and you were sorry and you know you shouldn't. It's saying this is what the Bible says and this is what I'm doing. They're different and I don't care what the Bible says. That's not what a Christian says. Do you see that? That's a big difference that you need to see. But they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And you could almost put the dot, 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 just as we were before we knew him, loved him, and served him. Just as we were before we were blameless and holy and righteous because of what he had done. If this is you and you don't know him, we want you part of this family. We want you to know who Jesus is. We want you to know this God and his love and the joy that it is to know him. Um, this is our life in him, clinging to the word. As worshipers of Jesus, we cling to him no matter what, no matter the trial, no matter the storm. And when we do that, it says to the world that Jesus is more valuable than anything else. Because the world looks at your life when it's falling apart and you're clinging to Jesus and they say, why? I don't, that doesn't even make sense to me. It reflects to the world how valuable and wonderful Jesus is to you. You know, as, as disciples of Jesus, we give everything we can to follow him and to cling to him and to know him and to love him, not so that he will love us, but because he has loved us. And as a family, we, we give of ourselves to help each other follow him. Because guess what? It's hard on planet earth. We've not been left alone, but here we are taking off the old, putting on the new, and Jesus has given us the gift of the Spirit and the gift of the Word and the gift of His people to help us on that journey. And as ambassadors, we go to carry this message. Jesus will make you blameless. Jesus will make you righteous. Jesus will make you holy. Not because of what you've done, but because of what He has done. He'll cleanse you. He'll make you new. He died to save sinners from death and give them life and life in abundance. So if you don't know him, today is the day. This is the God we worship you, and we want you to know him. Turn from your sin and turn to him. There's nothing you can do. You can't clean yourself up first. You can't do something. You need to turn to him and be saved. And if you're a Christian, and you're saying, man, I am finding my satisfaction in something else. This, this isn't my heart. This, that doesn't describe me. Uh, pursuing him doesn't describe my life. Uh, uh, living this way, being other-centered, th that doesn't describe me, but I love him and I want to change. Here, here's the deal. You don't have to wait till like next week or next year to change. Follow him. Get after him. Open the word. Pray to him. Talk to him. Walk with other Christians. Live life for him right now. It's for you right now. He doesn't want you to wait and he doesn't want you to put yourself in time out. He wants you to get up and worship him. And if, if this describes you, you are living this life. Not perfectly. It's never perfectly. It's always taking off the old man and putting on the new on this earth. But if this describes you, what are you doing to give of yourself to help other people follow Jesus? What needs to change today so that you would give of yourself to pour into other people to help them as they're getting after Him? Let's pray.